Well, good morning. Good morning. I give honor to our God, the one who is worthy of all glory, and I'm grateful for God's goodness to us. And his brother Kevin prayed even for traveling mercies as we made our way here. Uh, in all of life, we need the mercies of our God, and I'm grateful for his goodness as he is so gracious and generous with us in giving us that and providing for us and looking on us in that great mercy that is his to show. I'm thankful for privilege to be back with you. The Lord has given us a good fall. We're thankful for uh, good meetings we feel. Last week I was up in Lexington, Kentucky, and the week before that in western Pennsylvania, and uh, prior to that eastern Pennsylvania, but also out in the Statesville area. We've seen good meetings. We're thankful for God's kindness to us in that to give us and favor us with a sense of His presence and the preaching of His Word and as well the refreshment of His people. So grateful for those things and for God's goodness. But but it is good to be back, as Brother Kevin mentioned. been a while, I think, back summer maybe. I can't remember, August or, or, Ju- or June, maybe, yeah, July maybe. I think it was back in March. In March? Has it been that long? Oh, my. Okay. Maybe I got last year in mind. I do that sometimes. But we're thankful to this. (laughs) Thankful, some appreciative of the opportunity to come back and to be with you. And uh, this Sunday is the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And uh, I think I may have been with you last year on this Sunday, or it may have been the year before, but in any event, uh, I, I. I love Thanksgiving. Uh, it's the holiday, I guess, that is leapt over by retailers and commercial world because they, I guess, can't make as much money off of it or they figure they're going to make enough anyway selling turkeys and cranberry sauce and stuffing and so forth. They don't spend much time. It seems Halloween and hadn't ended that the Christmas paraphernalia goes up. But I regret that it's omitted because it's, I think probably our greatest national holiday in one way, as far as apart from religious holidays, it's uh, religious in character, but it's lost that. And I'd just like for us to spend some time today looking at some select psalms that will, I believe, help us to reflect an attitude of thanksgiving, an attitude of gratitude, as one person put it. I'd invite you to turn with me at this hour to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. In the Bible that I'm reading, it has the caption before it, the title, God's Unsearchable Greatness. And I believe that is indeed a reflection of this psalm by way of its summary. But we want to consider it together. The inscription reads, David's Psalm of Praise. And uh, I'm glad that King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, wrote it. But this David would say as well, it's a psalm of praise that I would give my own acclamation to. But it's, it's a psalm that focuses particularly on the character of God, which is at the essence of praise, at the heart of praise. We, we often think about thanksgiving in terms of blessings we've received and gifts that have been given to us from the Lord, and that's not inappropriate, but the thanksgiving that is, I think, supreme is the thanksgiving that recognizes the blesser and the giver of the blessings and the gifts. And that is what David is particularly focused on. Now, he won't be be neglecting the fact that God gives us gifts. 
and God gives us blessings. That's going to reflect, be reflected in this psalm too. But over above that is the idea of a focus on God, His character, His person, who He is, that uh, to me makes this one of the most beautiful psalms that there is. And, and all of them reflect the beauty of the Lord. But let's read together. Again, David's psalm of praise, the inscription. Verse 1 reads, I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty, and of thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness, and shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. We trust that our God would grant his blessing to his word as we think together on it this hour. And let us just again call on him and ask his help. Father, we bow before you in the worthy name of thy dear Son, in whom these attributes that are spoken of by David concerning Thee. Father, we thank You that in Thy dear Son, our Lord Jesus, those attributes are magnified. And Father, we marvel as the psalmist did here at the greatness that marks Thee. We think as well of Thy glory and we think of Thy goodness and we give the honor. We pray Thy Spirit aid us now that He would give us blessing in our reflections Father, on this psalm, but our reflections on Thee as well. And Father, that it would issue and uh, come forward in praise in our lives. Not only in our lips, but as we live for Thee, that Father, our lives would reflect Thy glory as our Lord Jesus instructed us in those words of Matthew 5, that men would see those good works that our lives produce by Thy Spirit and grace, and that Father, they might glorify our Father which is in heaven. Lord, grant that, we pray, in the worthy name of thy dear Son. Amen. Well, as we look at this Psalm 145, again, the caption in my uh, Bible that I have with me is 
God's unsearchable greatness. And that is, I think, a definite focus of this psalm, the greatness of our God. And it's uh, something that uh, I think has been reflected lately in a a word that is an acronym you may have heard. Uh, I saw here about a year ago, maybe, a documentary on sports, I think it was on ESPN, on uh, Tom Brady. And they were calling him the GOAT. The GOAT. G-O-A-T. When I first heard it, I thought, what kind of name is that to call somebody? Then I understood what it was. It's an acronym. Greatest of all time. Now, I'm not a great Pats fan. I never really cared much for them, but I always thought Tom Brady was an exceptional quarterback. And when he went down to Tampa Bay, and I think they won a Super Bowl, I guess that kind of proves he's one of the best. But when we use that word greatest of all time, it seems it's usually in terms of categories, like for Mr. Brady, a quarterback, or it might be a, a runner or some kind of athlete, particularly it seems to find it, it's used in that setting. But brothers and sisters, the words of Psalm 145, I believe they exhibit for us the one who is really the greatest of all time. I will not call him a goat because I don't feel that's appropriate, but he is the greatest of all time. And that's what David is saying here in these words of Psalm 145. He's expressing, as he is again called there, and I believe it is Second Samuel 23, he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. And it was his privilege to glorify God in the words of this book that in the Hebrew bears the name Sefer Tehillim, book of praises. Our word hallelujah is built around that word that's at the root, at the heart of Tehillim in in, uh, the Hebrew title, Book of Praises. And every one of you have spoken Hebrew if you've ever said hallelujah because you're saying praise ye the Lord. And David in this great hollow here, this great psalm of praise to our God, he expresses the greatness of God. And he does so with a view to praising Him. Sometimes people recognize the greatness of someone, but they're not necessarily giving glory to that. Uh, I could give you an illustration in terms of Adolf Hitler. There's no question that Adolf Hitler was a great leader in the sense of his leadership. If you've ever watched some of the films they have of him when he's in that fury, almost demonic it seems, probably so, when he's but the German people being whipped up into a fervor and a furor because of his words that were uh, the propaganda that he spewed forth that that uh, left them in uh, applause and on their feet for him. But but I wouldn't say that greatness was a good thing. That greatness was in fact a bad thing. And there are many who have exercised greatness in ways that do not bring forth praise in an individual or praise in the human heart. But the greatness of our God, rightly understood, rightly apprehended, should result in us giving praise to Him and recognizing how worthy He is, indeed that He is the greatest of all time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so David does that here. In those words, he speaks about God's greatness. And let's just read again through a portion of this, brothers and sisters. We'll notice verses 1 through 6 to start with, where I believe there is that focus on His greatness. 
as we consider the words that David speaks by inspiration here. I will extol thee, O my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. And I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts. And I will declare thy greatness. Now let me add verse 7 because I believe it kind of segues into the next thought there. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness. Here, David speaks about our God, and if you notice, that word great is to the fore here. That word great is used in regard to God. It's found there three times in verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. And then again, the, the word is used there to speak of him and David's own resolve there in verse 6, I will declare thy greatness, the latter part of that verse. David is focused on the greatness of God. When we use the word magnify in uh, English, and we think it's to, uh, sometimes we might sing those words from Psalm 18, uh, Oh, magnify the Lord. Oh, and uh, we sing the words of Psalm 34 or, or quote them. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. The word magnify, literally from its Latin root in our English language, means to make great. But when we talk about God, that's not something we can do. What we're doing, rather, is declaring His greatness. What we're doing is speaking of the reality of what is recognizable if one looks rightly at who he is. Now the problem with the human heart and sin and depravity is we don't look rightly at our God. Even you and I who are saved, who've been given by grace a heart of flesh, the heart of stone's been taken out, we've been given a new nature, even we don't comprehend Him in His greatness like we should. I walk around in His creation day to day. And I don't walk around awestruck and baffled saying, wow, wow, look at the grass, wow. And as we said in the 70s, say it backwards, wow, you know. Uh, everything about creation ought to amaze me. And yet look at what science has done, or scientism, and said, oh, it's all the product of evolution. I was reading this past week about the new Webb telescope. Uh, it's supposed to be far greater than the Hubble. And they found some new galaxies. And you know, they ought to say, wow, what a creator. But instead they say, well, we're so many millions of years closer now to the Big Bang. It's amazing to me that learned men could look at the order of creation Look at even our solar system. Look at what God has hung in space here in the worlds that are around us. And they could say somehow, boy, it just happened. Of course, there are insurmountable scientific problems for such a view. But if we rightly were, I think, 
given to praise Him, we'd be walking around every day amazed at what we see. From the smallest cell to the galaxies, the hand of God is evident. The handiwork of God is there. And His greatness is reflected in that. And yet we so often fail to see it. We so often fail to recognize it. But David, by grace, has seen something of that. And so, in those words that begin the psalm, verses 1 and 2, he speaks in terms of his resolve to praise the Lord. He has a heart in which he's going to purpose to praise God. I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. I like the fact that both of these verses end with forever and ever. Because some would say that in the Old Testament, there's no real sense of immortality. In other words, they thought only in terms of this life to praise God. Now, there's a sense in which that's true as far as what we can do for God that has value in this world. It's got to be done in this life. That seed sown that's going to bear fruit in this life has to be sown in this life. But there's a recognition in the Psalms as well as in other parts of the Old Testament that there's a continuing existence after death. Don't let these who come around knocking on your door on Saturday morning toting their trash, saying they're on the watchtower and they're awake, but they're not. Don't let them quote Ecclesiastes 9 and throw you off about what the Bible teaches about life after death. David speaks here of an unending praise of God that will mark his life. An unending praise of God because he recognizes the greatness of God. He is resolved to praise Him. And that reason for praise is expressed in those words of verse 3. Great is the Lord, as we've lifted it before you, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Because of that, David takes a a long view of time, and he says in verse 4, One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. From generation to generation, we praise Him. And that, of course, is something that has marked. It marked Israel in her history. Even though Israel was marked, sadly, by great unfaithfulness, still there were those, that remnant, that elect remnant that Paul talks about in Romans 11, that from generation to generation gave God glory. And since our Lord Jesus began, founded His church in uh, the... First century A.D., from that time onward, in his churches, the Lord has seen the praise of his people passed on from generation to generation. And he's done it throughout the world. He's done it even though we think in terms of the westward expansion of the gospel after the apostles, the gospel expanded eastward too. And the gospel expanded southward. It went northward as well. God was sending forth His Word and one generation indeed has praised His name and declared His greatness and His glory from uh, generation to generation. Now David comes back to that personal resolve in verse 3, in verse 5, excuse me. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy righteous works. 
And then, in some measure, I think, reflecting back to verse 4, the generation to generation, and men, or notice in our King James, the word men is in italics. You could translate it as well, and they shall speak of the might of that terrible axe. In other words, those generations who will declare the greatness of God, there's a reference to them again here in the fact that they will speak of God in the acts that are His. They will declare His greatness. David is well speaking again of that result. The focus is on, again, who God is and because of who He is, what He has done and how that reflects who He is. This is something that is seen in the Scripture so often, but especially in the Psalms, in reflection of who God is, God acts consistent with His character. God acts in such a way is that what He does reflects who He is. And, of course, this is in some measure transferred to us as believers in uh, what God commands us to do in the light of what He has done for us in grace. I I like the way Brian Chappell, who's written a lot on preaching and uh, wrote a book entitled Christ-Centered Preaching, had the privilege of hearing him when Brother Ward had him to be a lecturer there at the Main Street uh, Sovereign Grace Baptist Conference and Bible Conference up in uh, Lexington. But but Brother uh, Brother Chapel speaks of it this way. The indicative always informs the imperative. Now you've got to go back to grammar school a little bit there. Most of us don't want to do that. But an indicative sentence is a sentence that is a matter-of-fact statement, specifically from the perspective of the speaker. I'm speaking to you right now. That's an indicative statement. But an imperative is a command. What we ought to do. God gives us plenty of commands in His Word. But the point that Mr. Chapel makes by that statement, the imperative is grounded in the indicative, is this that what we ought to do as believers that God tells us is grounded in the indicative of what He's done for us. The reality, the matter of fact of what He's done for us as His people and His grace. And that sovereign grace of God that gives to us a new heart, that becomes the basis for us acting in a way that honors Him. Well, if we take that back now with relation to God, what God does is a reflection of who He is. And and, and that is what David here is, as he celebrates the greatness of God, creation, the new creation, the works of God reflect his greatness. But then David begins to move and focus particularly in regard to this greatness on God's goodness. And if you'll notice that, in verse 7, we said it kind of segues on. It's seen as well in verse 8. It's seen as verse 9. It's seen there in the words as well of verse 10. And then there's another shift. But it's amazing how that shift will take place in a different way. Notice, please, the words there in verse 7 down through verse 10. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee and thy saints shall bless thee. 
here we have a reflection of who God is in His greatness, specifically with regard to His goodness. With regard to what we would call, if we were to use some larger terms that sometimes theologians use, but they're used in common life too, His benevolence and His beneficence. In other words, God's benevolence. When somebody's benevolence, benevolent, they wish people well. But when someone's beneficent, they do people well. And that's what God does in His ways. And, and that greatness that God manifests about His person is a greatness that is seen in the goodness He displays to all His creation, particularly to the sons of men. All creation, in measure, displays not only the greatness of God, but the goodness of God. The sun comes up. And brothers, sisters, you and I in this world, we live in a world that in our solar system is at just the right measure for us to receive warmth from the sun, but not to get burned up. To be cool enough with the sun being present and yet not freeze to death. If we were on Venus, we'd burn up. If we were on Mars, we'd freeze to death. But in the mercy of God, our earth in the solar system is where God has placed it so that life, brothers and sisters, can flourish. Now I realize they're looking for life on other planets. <laughs> I like what uh, I think it was Mr. Peretti said, Frank Peretti. He said that uh, one of these, I think it might have been Carl Sagan, said, if we can find out what they're, why they're here, we can maybe find out why we're here. And he, he said that when they get a message back from space, it'll be interesting if it says, if we can find out why you're here, we'll know why we're here. But anyway... Uh, I've been up there to Green Bank in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, and they've got satellite as big as football fields so they can pick up noises from outer space. It's a no-fly zone and they don't allow cell phones because they don't want anything interfering with those great big satellites. As far as I know, they hadn't heard a thing yet. Not a whisper, not a word. God has fed this world particularly. And you think about that in Genesis 1. The focus is on earth. Why? Because that has been the center of God's dealings and goodness specifically with men, with the animal creation, with all of life. Now, I'm, I know there are other existences because we've got those created celestial beings that we know as angels, both fallen and elect, that are intelligences, rational intelligences, but not human rational intelligences. They're angelic. We know that. But, but beyond that, brothers and sisters, I think that the reality is God's made this earth to be the focus of His particular goodness that declares who He is in His greatness. And, and David speaks about that here as he speaks about what men will do. Verse 7, they will abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness. Now notice the word great is joined with goodness here. How does God display His greatness so often? He displays it in His goodness to us. And you, you think about that. as Brother Kevin even in his prayer again mentioned traveling mercies to come here. Uh, 
we sometimes will hear people pray, and I like the nature of the prayer, thanking God for protecting them from danger seen and unseen. And I think we could add that known and unknown if we wanted to. When we think about the goodness of God that preserves us in the midst of a world, you think about traveling on the highway. You've got two cars that are meeting one another at 55 miles an hour and a lot of times higher than that. And yet we pass by one another, go our way. And we don't think about the mercies of God and His great goodness that preserve us. And the fact that in so many other ways He displays that. Uh, I think about those who've had sickness. Terry was telling me about a fellow who, as far as I know, younger than I am, from York County. His family was in the church that I pastored up there in York County, Pennsylvania. Brother Paul was with us when we were there. We just had Sarah, and I can remember Brother Paul. I think you had Sarah on the swing out there, a swing set behind the house. But anyway, our princess, as Paul said. Uh, but this, this younger man that I am, and I'm not young anymore. These gray hairs will give that... But he has had a massive heart attack and has 30% of the use of his heart. He's wearing what they call a life vest, which is like a paddle that if there's a, I guess, telemetric reading, we need telemetric because he's right there, right there. If there's a, there's a metered reading that his heart has dropped a certain point, then the paddles will kick in and reinitiate his heartbeat. Terry was telling me about that on her way over. She got an update from Sandy, his mother-in-law, about it. And I thought about my own health. I've had some issues, but I've not had anything like that, especially being as young as Marlon is. God displays His goodness in so many ways. The food on our table, the clothes that we have, the warmth that we have, isn't it nice to live in homes that are climate controlled? I mean, people in many parts of the earth don't have that. We think about the goodness of God that He's kind of multiplied and lapped on top of all of that great goodness. And that's how David describes it. They'll abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness, sing of thy righteousness. That, that great goodness that God shows but then David narrows it into focus in a particular way in the words of verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. These words that David here by inspiration speaks in this psalm are words that we see scattered throughout the Old Testament that are reflective of what God revealed about Himself back in the book of Exodus. Chapter 34. I just ask you to turn there with me, please. And, and the Lord willing, next hour we may turn there again as we look at yet another psalm. But in Exodus chapter 34, the, uh, the psalmist is there quoting. David is quoting, I believe, the words of, words of the name that God declared to Moses in Exodus 34. Notice here, let me give you the background. Some of you recall it in Exodus 34. Israel, while Moses has been on the mount receiving the law of God, Israel has fallen into sin. They told Aaron, 
make us gods. As for this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron makes that bull calf of gold. And they worship it and they engage in not only idolatry but immorality. And as they do that, Moses comes down. Remember, he's angered. He breaks the tablets. And then judgment falls on the people. The the Levites particularly rise to the occasion and they execute judgment on those who've engaged in sin against the Lord. And, and God tells Moses, Moses, you take the people you brought out of Egypt up. And Moses said, Lord, we want you to go with us. And that's what Exodus 33 is about. Moses is basically saying, Lord, if you don't go, we're not going. God says, well, I'll go then. And while Moses has God's ear, at the end of chapter 33, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, all right, Moses. I'm going to do it, but I'm going to let you see, as the King James says, my hinder parts, my hinder parts. I like the way some take it afterglow. In other words, Moses is told, you can't stand the full effect of who I am in your present body. So I'm going to cover you in the cleft of the rock, and then as as my afterglow passes by, I'll, I'll uncover you in the cleft of the rock and let you see it. And what happens is, as chapter 34 says, the Lord proclaims His name. That is, He he reveals Himself in His person as I am. Notice it in the words there, verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Again, that's Exodus 34, 5. God, verse 5 says, proclaimed the name of the Lord. What does He do? Well, He preaches. What does He preach? Well, the only thing God can preach is Himself. So He declares Himself. He proclaims His name. And notice verse 6. And the Lord passed by before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Here... Our God speaks about the reality of who He is. And David, in those words of verse 8 of Psalm 145, picks up on what God has said about Himself. And he embodies some of that in His words as a reflection of who God is in His goodness. For you see, the, the highest point of God's goodness is the grace that He has shown to us. The grace He showed to Israel when they had so sinned against Him that He could have said, I'm done with you. But in the words that George Matheson wrote, thank God there was a love that would not let us go. It would have been right when our first parents sinned if when they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, They'd have heard footsteps trailing off in the distance. And God said, I'm done with humanity. But that didn't happen. God came down and held court. And as He did, He declared judgment on the evil one in the beginning. And He said the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And as He declared that, He was preaching good news for us of Adam's race. And and that's the goodness of God, the graciousness of God, that compassion that He's full of and that 
slowness to anger and that great mercy that is his. And David again takes these words that speak of who God is, his self-revelation and by inspiration David incorporates them in celebrating the goodness of God. Now we need to move on so just let me ask you to pick up with me. Verse 9, that statement of goodness again. The, the, the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. That's true in creation. That's true in God's provision for the animate creation. Uh, I, I can remember, of course, Brother Junior Basham that lives just down the road here. I can remember him telling about going up to Ruffin near Reedsville to sell corn or meal, uh, some corn he had. He said he hit a bump along the road as he was on his way up. And some of that grain splashed off the back of that I think ton and a half truck he had. I don't know how long, how much frame weight it was actually, but some of that grain just bounced off onto the road. And he said some birds just came and enjoyed the picnic on the road. God providing for his creation. God's goodness as he meets the needs and he is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. He provides for his creation. As I thought about this in meditation earlier, I, I thought I would love if someone could come up with how many pounds of food would be required to feed all the birds that are in the world. Now, you could probably, you know, from a zoo, get some figures for their animals. And uh, I wouldn't want to feed the elephants, but the Lord does. <laughs> Gives them water too. The Lord is good to all and His tender mercies are over all His works. I remember years ago hearing about, we'd had a lot of rain at a family camp that I'd spoken for up in uh, above Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And most of that rain attracted from the Gulf. And, and one of the brothers there told about how many millions of gallons of water had been transported along the way. Much of it had fallen, but there was still enough left that we had rain for like four days there that, that week. And he told how many millions of gallons had been transported in those clouds from the Gulf up about, I'm going to figure probably 1,500 miles as the crow flies to Pennsylvania. Why does God do that? To water the earth. Why? So that it might bring forth. The Lord is good to all and His tender mercies are all, over all His works. David goes on then to speak after he, that last part there of the, what we looked at, verse 10, All thy works shall praise thee and thy saints shall bless thee. He goes on to speak of what his saints particularly are focused on, and that is his glory. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom, the greatness and glory that marks his kingdom. Now, God has been called king back in verse 1, but here we have a focus particularly on the greatness of God in the glory of His kingdom. And the psalmist goes on to say in verse 13, Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. God is king. And this is one of the messages of the book of Daniel. Uh, it's my privilege to speak of 
couple of weeks ago in, in uh, Pitt, western Pennsylvania from the book of Daniel. And uh, one of the messages of Daniel is the Lord is king. And we are to rejoice in it. Now, one day he will reign literally on the earth as king, the son of man who will receive from the ancient of days a kingdom that will never end, dominion that will be everlasting. But even now, in his sovereignty, God exercises kingship over all that is. And that kingdom is something in which, by his grace, he is working out his purpose. Even though man in his wrath and man in his sin and in his rebellion fights against God, the Bible says in the book of Psalms, Psalm 76.10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, O God, and the remainder of wrath thou wilt restrain. That's the marvel of our God's power. I like the way one man described it. He said it's like the miller who back in the days of the old milling, remember, they had the paddle wheel. They get a sluice and some kind of channel to get that water to run off the creek or the river. And it would govern that pattern, would turn that paddle wheel. And, and there was the uh, turning of the wheel would, would, would turn that wheel inside the cogs and gears and all would work so that that mill was ground just as fine as the miller wanted it and he had in that sluice that would often allow the uh, water to come in the channel he, he, he had a gate so he could control how much water he wanted and, and this brother used that illustration to speak about God making the wrath of man to praise him and restraining the, the, the remainder of wrath. God exercises his sovereign kingship in such a way as that even the acts of men and devils will ultimately redound to his glory. Now, I can't wrap my mind around that fully. They do it hatefully. They do it spitefully. They do it in rebellion. And yet God in His overarching wisdom and providence, the greatness of His being, He still is working out His purpose. And we can rejoice in that. And and David, as he speaks about our God the King, speaks about that everlasting character of His kingdom. Now then, it seems to me at verses 14 through 21, what we have is somewhat of a joining of all these together. The greatness of God and His goodness and His grace exercised in His kingship over all things. And and so verses 14 through 21 speak of that reality. Now the word all has occurred already, but it seems the word all comes to the fore. In Hebrew, it would be the word kol, but it, it sometimes it's translated every in our King James or in other versions, but, but it, it, notice it as we read those words in closing, 14 through 21. The Lord upholdeth all that fall, and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand, and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. That again would be kol, the same word 
word translated all in the Hebrew text. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He will also hear their he also will hear their cry and will save them. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Those words there give us really a combination of these things that we see of God's greatness, God's goodness, God's grace, God's glory as it's displayed in God's dealings with men. And that, if you will, is what makes him the greatest of all time. We can say more about it because of time. We'll, we'll break off at that point. But may the Lord grant us all to be a people who would praise Him, a people who would rightly recognize how worthy of thanksgiving and of honor that He is in our lives. Thank you.